The Pentagon now says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized because of prostate cancer, even though it took days to tell the White House. It's Wednesday, January 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lawyers for former President Donald Trump argued in court yesterday he can't be prosecuted for official actions taken as president. The judges seem skeptical. In your view, could a president sell pardons or sell military secrets? Those are official acts. Also, a recap of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's State of the City address. And this hour, animal shelters nationwide are struggling to keep up with the number of animals coming in. Couple that with a shortage of staffing, decrease in funding, shortage of veterinarians across the country, and it's really this perfect storm. Rain and wind this morning, but sun by this afternoon. Temperatures fall into the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There are continuing questions around Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's prostate cancer treatment. He didn't inform President Biden of his illness and surgery in December, even though Austin was placed under general anesthesia. And the White House said it did not know of Austin's cancer diagnosis until yesterday. House Republicans are moving a resolution to hold the president's son, Hunter Biden, in contempt of Congress. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports that's for failing to testify in their impeachment probe. Hunter Biden showed up at the Capitol last month on the day he was directed to appear before two House committees. But he said he would not agree to a closed-door interview, arguing GOP lawmakers would distort his testimony. Instead, he pushed for a public hearing. GOP committee chairs say he defied their subpoena and he was, quote, contemptuous and he must be held accountable for his unlawful actions. House Judiciary and Oversight Panels will consider a resolution to refer Hunter Biden to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. The full House could take it up soon. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. U.S. Central Command says Houthi militants have launched a barrage of missiles and drones today at commercial shipping lanes in the Red Sea. NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Tel Aviv, Iranian-backed Houthis stepped up their Red Sea attacks late last year after the war in Gaza started. Houthi rebels launched the attack as dozens of international merchant ships were transiting through the Red Sea corridor. U.S. and British warships shot down more than 20 drones and missiles launched by the Yemen-based Houthis. U.S. Central Command said there were no injuries or damage reported. The uptick in Houthi attacks in the Red Sea has forced many major shipping companies to reroute their vessels, driving up costs and threatening supply chains. In December, the U.S. created a multinational maritime force to help protect ships in the Red Sea, which is vital to global trade. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Republicans in the Maine legislature have failed to get enough support to launch an impeachment probe of Maine's Secretary of State. Maine Public Radio's Kevin Miller reports GOP lawmakers targeted the official over her decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot. The vote was 80 to 60 against creating an impeachment committee to investigate Secretary of State Shanna Bellows. The Democrat was the nation's first Secretary of State to remove Trump from the ballot under the Constitution's insurrection clause in connection to the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. But Democrats like Adam Lee say Bellows was obligated under state law to review Trump's eligibility after several voters challenged his ballot status. This resolution is before us not because she did anything wrong, but because some of us don't like her decision. Trump's name will appear on the ballot while his appeal plays out in court. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Miller in Augusta, Maine. This is NPR News.
I'm Rupa Chinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. The rain and wind from our latest storm is moving out, but they left plenty of problems behind. The D says buses are replacing red line trains between Braintree and Quincy Center because of flooding. The high winds have forced the Steamship Authority to cancel a number of early morning runs to the Vineyard and Nantucket. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the worst of the wind is now done. We had some gusts. I was just checking some of the reports. Uh, 70 miles per hour atop of Blue Hill. Rockport briefly gusted over 80 um, right around 3 in the morning. Uh, The Cape and Islands have been gusting 60 to 65. So that's why the outage numbers spiked, um, you know, to the few thousands a few hours ago. But improvement now, it will be kind of a blustery day because the wind will still gust 30 to 40, but it is no longer a damaging wind threat today. There are 4,900 power outages statewide. The biggest numbers are on Cape Ann. At Logan Airport, FlightAware reports 46 canceled flights and another 25 delays. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the state of the city is strong. In her State of the City address last night, Wu highlighted what she called various successful initiatives in Boston. Those include investing in minority businesses and increasing affordable housing. She also touched on some new goals for the city moving forward. Wu says Boston is following through on its promise to be a green city for every resident. Last year... I promised to ban fossil fuels in new city buildings, and we did. Already, two new community centers and two libraries in progress will be fossil fuel free. And this year, we will introduce zero net carbon zoning to make Boston the greenest city in the country. Wu also announced the city will launch its first network geothermal system. That project will deliver sustainable heating and cooling to homes in Franklin Park. We're learning more about the $375 million in spending cuts that Governor Healy wants. Many of those cuts will come from MassHealth. Evan Horowitz is executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University. He says some of the savings could come from an overestimation of the number of people using MassHealth. But he told WBUR's Radio Boston that it could be something else. One reason the estimate could be off is it's a pain in the butt to apply to this program. And there may be lots of people who are eligible for it, but they're not filling out the paperwork or they're not getting the assistance that they need or they don't know that they need to reapply. So this is a savings that may be at the expense of people who should be in the program. And that's not something that we can know. Horowitz says cuts that come in the middle of a fiscal year like these are often funds state agencies no longer expect to spend in the coming months. The former head of the new mission school in Hyde Park will serve two years of supervised release for misusing school funds. Prosecutors say Naya Wilson used more than $38,000 on a personal vacation. Wilson will need to pay restitution to Boston Public Schools. It's 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Bruins lost to the Coyotes 4-3 last night in Arizona. Despite the loss, Boston remains in first place in the Atlantic Division, two points ahead of Florida. The Bees will visit the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Minnesota Timberwolves. The heavy rain and strong wind will die off soon, and it'll eventually turn sunny by this afternoon. Temperatures today will fall into the 40s, clear overnight with a low around freezing, 
sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Can a president order the murder of a political opponent and get away with it? A federal appeals court considered that question as former President Trump looked on, and we will hear the arguments in a moment. First, we follow up on a story of interest to many people who fly. It's the aftermath of an Alaska Airlines flight that made an emergency landing after a panel came off the side of the plane. The nearest seats were empty, which may be why this incident wasn't even more disturbing. Boeing has updated instructions for inspection and maintenance. Some 737 MAX airplanes are grounded. But what now? The National Transportation Safety Board investigates safety incidents and tries to figure out how to keep them from recurring. And Jennifer Hamadi is chair of the NTSB. She's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. I grant that these things take a while to reach final conclusions, but do you feel you understand pretty much what went wrong? Well, we know what broke. The components on the top of the door plug fractured, which allowed the plug to be violently expelled from the plane. Uh, The bolts that hold those components in place, uh, we don't know whether those bolts themselves also fractured, were loose, or whether they weren't even installed on the door. And that's something we're going to have to determine when we get that door plug to the lab. Oh, so you just told me something I didn't know. You know that some pieces Mm. fractured, but that some bolts you don't know might not even have been in there in the first place. Somebody might have forgotten? May not have been. We don't know. Uh, those bolts could have fractured. Uh, they they could have been loose, and or they weren't there. So when we get the door plug, we're going to pack that up today and send it back to our headquarters in Washington D.C., where we have labs, and our metallurgists will begin examining. Uh, those pieces and other components, uh, but they're going to want to look at those fittings at the top of the door plug to see if they can tell if the bolts were installed. They will be able to figure that out because uh, they'll be able to see witness marks uh, if if the bolts were installed, that, that would be present. I, I'm glad you mentioned the lab. I'll just note that there are a bunch of professionals who work on plane crashes and other kinds of disasters and try to figure them out after the fact, and that's what's happening now. Let me ask about the human role here. We're told, anyway, that warning lights were illuminated on this flight three times involving the pressurization in the cabin, um, and, and apparently this was in some way disregarded. Should this plane have been flying at all? Well, those uh, warning lights, uh, we, first of all, we have a team that is lo- looking at those warning lights. At this time, we have no indication that those warning lights were in any way related to uh, the expulsion of the door. And let me um, just take a second to describe that. That, that system uh, um, monitors and... Um, adjusts press- cabin pressure and automatically there's a primary system, there's a secondary system, and there's a manual system. So there are two backups on the aircraft. It's a triple redundant system. Mm-hmm. We know the two other systems were working on the aircraft, and the Federal Aviation Administration allows airlines to continue flying the aircraft. Uh, with those other backup systems. 
So in this case, what we want, we do want to make sure uh, there was no linkage. Uh, so we are pulling the memory cards uh, and looking at the maintenance and testing that was done on those systems. Um, so you're saying that there was a redundant system and even with this problem showing up that they could fly again. But I'm remembering a recent flight right. where the plane didn't even ever get off the ground. We ended up leaving the plane because there was some internal panel, one of those plastic panels that isn't even like important to the structure of the airplane that was loose. That was too much. It's surprising to me that any small problem at all of this sort would, would allow the plane to take off. Yeah, and that and that's something we're going to look at as part of this investigation. Because we're an independent federal agency, we also look at uh, not not just uh, the operator, not just uh, the humans involved, and the the machine and the environment in which they were operating. We also look at uh, federal standards and oversight of the operator and the manufacturer by the Federal Aviation Administration. Uh, how soon would you expect uh, the other 737 planes that have been grounded to be, to be cleared? Well, uh, that is a decision by the FAA. Right. They are, we do not have authority to ground or unground those. Uh, I, my understanding is that they are in the process of inspecting uh, those planes and making uh, certain findings and reporting those and repairs. Uh, I think it's key, though, in this situation that they know absolutely what occurred here uh, before ungrounding the planes. Find out what happened beforehand. Uh, Chair Hammond, thanks so much. Thank you. Jennifer Hamadi is chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. Former President Donald Trump made his case to appeals court judges in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Yeah, facing a panel of skeptical judges, lawyer John Sauer argued Trump is immune from criminal prosecution for anything he did while in office, even trying to overturn his election defeat, unless Congress impeached and convicted him first. To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson watched the arguments, and she's on the line with us now to talk more about them. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. So the former president made some sweeping claims about presidential power. How did the judges at the appeals court seem to respond to that? All three judges seem really doubtful about siding with Trump on that key question of blanket immunity. One judge, Florence Pan, posed a tough question for Trump's lawyer. Here she is. In your view, could a president sell pardons or sell military secrets? Those are official acts. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? Prosecutor said that outcome would be truly scary. But another judge, Karen Henderson, asked if the court sided with the Justice Department, would that open the floodgates for more prosecutions of presidents in the future? A special counsel lawyer said no way that Donald Trump and his behavior have been unique in American history. Remember, Trump is fighting 91 felony charges in four different jurisdictions while leading the Republican race for the presidency in 2024. And to that end, we're only days away from the Iowa caucuses. More voters are heading to the polls in other states very soon. Will we have a ruling by this D.C. appeals court soon? 
The court didn't give any timetable for its decision, but these judges know the clock is running. If he loses here, Trump may appeal to the full D.C. Circuit Court and then onto the Supreme Court. This trial was supposed to start March 4th. Right now, it's on hold. And if the judges take a long time to decide or Trump is able to drag out more appeals, there may be no trial before the election. The special counsel knows that, too, so he's asked the judges to move quickly and give Trump a tight deadline for any any more appeals. If Trump wins the presidency, he could direct his Justice Department to dismiss this case in D.C. and another one in Florida as well. And, and Donald Trump did appear at the courthouse. This was the first time since his arraignment last August. Carrie, would you just describe his demeanor? Would you just tell us, did he say or do anything while he was there? He entered the courtroom only a few moments before the arguments began. He didn't say much other than to ask his lawyers where to sit in the courtroom. He wrote some notes and passed a few of them to his attorneys. After the hearing, he made a quick appearance at a nearby hotel where he said he did nothing wrong and said he was being prosecuted for political reasons, but there is no evidence, none whatsoever, that the current president played any role in this case. And uh, the former president, Trump, has been using his legal troubles as a major part of his message on the campaign. He's certainly been fundraising around them. Could we hear more from him later this week? Absolutely. There are closing arguments on Thursday in New York in that civil fraud trial against Trump and his company. The former president plans to attend, and he's been pretty vocal about that case in the hallways in the courthouse. But Trump is now operating under a limited gag order there. After he attacked a court clerk and posted false information about her, the clerk received a lot of ugly threats that led to the gag order. Not only in New York, there's also one operating in D.C. now as well after judges and other people were threatened in that case, too. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. Happy to be here. There's been a lot of severe weather this week. Snowstorms dropping as many as 12 inches of snow across the Midwest over the last couple of days. This includes a broad area stretching from Colorado to Michigan. This is the kind of a system you might see in October or in March where you have a very heavy rain hazard right against the heavy snow hazard. That is David Roth. He is a forecaster with the Weather Prediction Center in College Park, Maryland. Roth is also monitoring the storms across the south that brought heavy rain, hail, tornadoes, and flash floods to parts of Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Since there's so much strong wind in the low levels, it allows things like severe thunderstorms and tornadoes to form. It's a very good setup for heavy rain, so you get flash flooding too. Storms in the south have caused a lot of damage, killed several people, and left more than 147,000 customers without power. Now storms are expected to move into the northeast next. They already had some snow the other day. Now they get some more, bringing heavy rain and wind to parts of the New England region. But Roth says even as these storms pass, people in those areas need to remain alert. We're going to have another storm kind of like this in a few days. He says the next storms could bring more excessive rainfall and snowfall to the Midwest and the south. But the problem is now the eastern United States and the southern United States have soils that are getting more and more saturated. And this time of the year, since it doesn't get as warm, you don't get as much evaporation. So the soils don't dry out quite like they might in June, July, or August. And that can lead to toppled trees, landslides, and road closures. So be watchful and stay safe. This is NPR News.
Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, why some small businesses that got pandemic-era loans forgiven are repaying them anyway. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business powering possibilities. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Showers taper off and gusty winds slowly die down this morning. Then skies gradually clear and we may see some sun this afternoon. Temperatures will fall throughout the day from where they are now to the low 40s by mid-afternoon. Tonight mostly clear in the low 30s. Tomorrow sunny with a high in the mid 40s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Now that the Golden Globes have been handed out, we are firmly in Hollywood's awards season. But instead of looking back at 2023, we are going to look ahead. The team at NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour has been anticipating some of the interesting movies coming our way in 2024. Aisha Harris is here. Now, I like to judge movies sometimes by the title. This one has me (laughs) already. Lisa Frankenstein. Tell us about Lisa Frankenstein. This is a zombie comedy that's set in 1989. It's about a weird teen who somehow manages to resurrect the corpse of her crush. Taffy says it's a waste of time to try and fix a boy. It's better just accept a guy's flaws. Oh, that's so cute. So (laughs) the premise, as you can probably tell, is uh, loosely inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But what most interests me about this is the fact that it's written by Diablo Cody, who is sort of the mastermind behind movies you might recognize like Juno or Jennifer's Body. And Cody's sensibilities are very pointed and wry. And the female characters she's written in her previous films all really tap into this very confident female rage and agency. And I think this movie is going to deliver in a in a very fun and funny way. That's really weird, Lisa. <laughs> it also stars uh, Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse, and it's directed by Zelda Williams, who is uh, the daughter of Robin Williams. It's scheduled for release in February, and I'm really excited to uh, check this movie out. 
Really hope this goth phase ends soon. Zombies set in 1989. That's all you had to say to me. Now, okay, the <laughs> next film that you're talking about is part of a series that many might recognize with names that are very recognizable. Yes, this is Furiosa, a Mad Max saga. Whatever you have to do, however long it takes, promise me you'll find your way home. It's an origin story for the character of Imperador Furiosa, who was played by Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury Road. And in that movie, she battled her boss to free his concubines, the Five Wives. Here, we've got a younger version of Furiosa taking center stage, and she's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. I'm Furiosa! The darkest of angels. Yeah, so you probably recognize Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit or The Menu. Um, there's not much else we know about this movie other than that Chris Hemsworth is playing this, you know, bike lord who's seemingly the main villain. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines! But you've got George Miller still at the helm of this film, and it looks really fun. It looks really interesting. I don't know if it's going to be able to top Mad Max Fury Road and how surprising and just fresh that felt, but I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if you are too, A. Like, it just seems like it'll be a really fun time at the movies. Again, Hemsworth, that's all you had to say <laughs> for me to get locked into that one. So there you go. All right. So uh, this next film that you're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to have to wait till the summer. It's called The Bike Riders. It stars Austin Butler. That's the guy who played Elvis. Tell us about The Bike Riders. Yeah. So this time around, Austin Butler is, instead of playing this tragic rock star, he's playing a member of a fictional rough and tumble Chicago motorcycle gang. It also stars Jodie Comer, who you may recognize from Killing Eve. She was fantastic in that. The club got real big real fast. They started running drugs, gambling, prostitution. Is that what this club is now? Um, and we've also got Tom Hardy, who he's doing a very interesting accent that sounds kind of nasally and weasley. If he wants to ride a bike, you ride a bike. You've got Michael Shannon. This is just a great cast. Um, and it's set in the 1960s and tells the story of how this motorcycle gang kind of devolved into chaos and infighting. It's partially inspired by a nonfiction photo book that profiled the Outlaws MC, which was also based in Chicago. And it's written and directed by Jeff Nichols, who's this really interesting filmmaker. He did some films like Take Shelter, Mud, Loving. All of them I really recommend. And he's really great at establishing environments and moods and drawing really intimate performances out of his performers. So I'm really looking forward to this. It looks like it's going to be really, really interesting. Got to admit, I do love Tom Hardy doing accents. He was Bane in <laughs> Batman. Okay, so yeah, yes, I'll give that yes. a shot too. All right, finally, this movie doesn't even have an official release date yet. So Aisha, why are you looking forward to Problemista? This comes from the mind of Julio Torres, who's written for SNL, and he also co-created the very off-kilter HBO comedy Los Spookies. Torres here plays Alejandro, an aspiring toy designer who is Salvadoran and lives in New York and is working on a work visa. You have a month to find someone to co-sign your visa. And if you don't, you have to leave the U.S. I started freelancing for this lady. You think this lady can sponsor you? I, I mean, we'll see. And he hopes that his co-signer could be the weirdo artist he's assisting, who's played <laughs> by none other than... Tilda Swinton. And when you hear Tilda Swinton, of course, <laughs> you're going to be like, ooh, this sounds even more interesting. Oh, this menu. What is it with walnuts? Walnuts, walnuts, walnuts. It's like a cafe for squirrels. Walnuts, they go very nicely with the salad. Do I look like I need educating on fine cuisine? 
it looks like this surreal spin on a lot of things, like our dysfunctional immigration system, what it means to be a young person trying to make it in a career, and especially in the art world. The thing is, you can't take money right now. He must find a sponsor and pay fees to earn money. The maze is impossible to navigate. Wait, I mean, this sucks so much for you. And the rest of the cast is really, really fantastic, too. It also includes Riza, Greta Lee, and Isabella Rossellini. So, like, this and Lisa Frankenstein are probably the weirdest of my picks. And I think they will both be, hopefully, really fun to, to check out. And that character, Alejandro's last name is Martina, so I got to support another A. Martinez. I mean, I just have to, right? <laughs> You've got to. I mean, You've got yeah, to. Yeah, I got to. That's Aisha Harris from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast with a few films to look forward to this new year. Aisha, thanks. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, WBUR Simone Rios gives us the highlights from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's State of the City address last night. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. In Taipei, a comedy club has become an unlikely venue for working out tensions between Taiwan and China. Hi, my name is Jamie. I'm from China. Thank you for the awkward silence. (laughs) We take you there on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is doing well after suffering complications from prostate cancer surgery. But as NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the secrecy surrounding Austin's treatment and hospitalization is prompting the White House to review protocols for all cabinet members. Defense Secretary Austin was hospitalized on New Year's Day with severe stomach pain 10 days after surgery to remove his prostate gland. But the White House said it just learned of Austin's cancer diagnosis Tuesday morning, only hours before it was announced publicly by doctors at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Doctors say Austin is now recovering and his overall prognosis is excellent. Meanwhile, White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients has ordered all cabinet members to submit their plans should they face a similar scenario, stressing the White House needs to be kept in the loop. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Some Republicans in Congress have called on Austin to resign or be fired. At least five deaths are being blamed on stormy weather that's been moving across the U.S. this week. Tornadoes were reported yesterday in the south, including areas of Alabama, Florida, and South Carolina. Blizzard warnings remain in effect in parts of Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The storm that's moving out of our area has left thousands of people without electricity this morning. There are 4,600 outages scattered around the state. Flooding is causing problems on the T. Shuttle buses are replacing red line trains between Braintree and Quincy Center. There are also significant delays on the Orange Line. Flight Aware reports nearly 50 cancellations in and out of Logan Airport this morning. Another 30 flights are delayed. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu promised to tackle the issue of housing costs and the shortage of housing in her State of the City address last night. She also announced a plan to make the city's museums more accessible to families. WBUR Solon Kelleher explains. Boston is home to some of the world's finest museums, but admission costs can sometimes keep families from visiting these celebrated institutions. Mayor Wu's announcement last night changes that. Starting in February, on the first and second Sundays of each month, BPS students and their families will get free admission at the Museum of Fine Arts, the Institute of Contemporary Art, the Museum of Science, the Boston Children's Museum, the New England Aquarium, and the Franklin Park Zoo. The announcement follows a trend of increased accessibility at Boston area institutions. Local museums that are free year-round to all visitors include the Harvard Art Museums, Fuller Craft Museum, and the Mass Art Art Museum. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. House lawmakers on Beacon Hill plan to vote today on a proposal banning the distribution of, quote, revenge porn in the state. Under the plan, distributing sexually explicit content without someone's consent would be considered criminal harassment. Offenders could face up to two and a half years in prison or a $10,000 fine. Massachusetts is one of only two states that does not explicitly ban revenge porn. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to installing proper insulation and keeping homes energy efficient. No-cost home assessments at GoEndlessEnergy.com. The Bruins rallied to tie the Coyotes last night in Arizona, but then fell in overtime. The final was 4-3. to three. The Bees' road trip continues tomorrow night in Las Vegas. Tonight, the Celtics return home to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Strong winds die down and the rain will taper off over the next few hours. Then clouds gradually move out and we'll have a mostly sunny afternoon. Temperatures will cool throughout the day to the low 40s. Tonight, low 30s and mostly clear with some gusty winds. Tomorrow, mid-40s and sunny. It's 54 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Let's say you got a loan and you didn't have to pay it back. You'd probably celebrate. But some people did something unusual. They got loans from the government's Paycheck Protection Program, which helped small businesses during COVID, and they were eligible for loan forgiveness, but they repaid the money anyway. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer is here with us to tell us more about this. Good morning, Sasha. Good morning, Michelle. 
So why would companies repay loans that could have been forgiven? Yeah, so first understand that forgiveness was the norm with PPP loans. Even though this program was rampant with fraud and waste, the vast majority of the loans have been forgiven. So I was surprised to find that some borrowers have repaid their loans without ever applying for forgiveness, yet they would have qualified for forgiveness according to the program's rules. Out of the 11.5 million loans issued, only about 73,000 have been repaid without requesting forgiveness, just six-tenths of a percent. Companies don't have to explain why they repaid it, but one business I interviewed said it ended up being able to survive the pandemic without using its PPP loan, so it thought paying it back was the right thing to do. So they say it was the principle of the thing. It was a sense of ethics. That's what they say. This is a law firm in Wellesley, Massachusetts, called Gilmore, Reese & Carlson. It got a $700,000 PPP loan. And here's what its managing partner during COVID, Bob Morrill, told me. From the second we got the money, the plan was always, we're going to wait and see if we need it. If we need it, we're going to use it. And if we don't use it, we're going to pay it back. The analogy that comes to mind to me is like, You're throwing life preservers to people on a boat in a storm, and if they don't need it when the boat pulls back into the harbor, they ought to give the life preservers back. And Michelle, to continue that analogy, his law firm got through the COVID storm better than expected, no layoffs, no pay cuts, so it paid its loan back. And Morrill wishes the government had appealed to companies to return money they didn't need. The people at the higher wealth end of the spectrum that kept it, that didn't need it, yeah, I got a problem with that. Now, Sasha, you've reported before that the Paycheck Protection Program distributed almost $800 billion. How much of that was forgiven? Almost all of it, 96%. Even loans that went to companies owned by rich celebrities, including Khloe Kardashian and Tom Brady, were forgiven. And even loans to companies that thrived during COVID, like many construction and, and teleworking software firms. Of the companies that returned the money without requesting forgiveness, most of the ones I contacted wouldn't talk, so it's unclear how many others did that as a kind of ethical decision. I wonder why they wouldn't talk about it, and I'm also wondering what other reasons might there be. Yeah, I know. It's strange, isn't it? So maybe they thought repaying would be easier than applying for forgiveness, or maybe they thought they didn't meet forgiveness criteria, or they didn't want to risk a government audit. And Michelle, some were big companies that got slammed for taking PPP and were pressured to return it, like Shake Shack and the L.A. Lakers. So for the people who did return the money, they told you they did it for their own reasons, but did they also hope it would set an example? You know, all those forgiven loans have contributed to our $34 trillion national debt. And the attorney I interviewed, Bob Morrill, says his law firm returning the money is its tiny contribution to not making that debt any larger. Here's what a University of Chicago finance professor who studies PPP, Eric Zwick, said to me about that. It's like the kid throwing the starfish back into the ocean after the storm. I didn't know that parable, so Zwick told me it's about a bunch of starfish getting washed ashore, and a child starts putting some back in the water, and someone approaches the child. And the person's like, you can't possibly save them all. Why are you doing this? And he's like, well, it makes a difference through this one as he throws one into the water. The lesson being, just because an action is small doesn't mean it isn't worthwhile. That is NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer. Sasha, thank you. You're welcome. Taiwan votes for a new president Saturday. The government in Beijing on the mainland considers the island a part of China, and that government is watching very closely. What about the people of mainland China? Here's NPR's John Ruich. 
In Taiwan last year, a Netflix series called Wave Makers made a splash. The show focuses on a fictional presidential campaign in Taiwan and the issue of sexual harassment. It gave the Me Too movement there a big boost. In China, there is no Netflix, but many here have found ways to watch the show and have been impressed by what it depicts. Mary is a mother of two living in the city of Wuhan. Like others we spoke to in China for this story, she did so on the condition that we don't use her full Chinese name because the topic of Taiwan is so sensitive. She says she envies people on the self-ruled island. They can participate in elections and fight for their own rights, things like that. In one of the show's most widely quoted lines, a senior party member offers support to a staffer. Let's not just let this go, okay, she says, encouraging her to push for justice in the face of sexual harassment. But a high school junior in China named Hannah, who we talked with, likes that line for another reason. For me, it's encouragement to not give up hope for a democratized China. The whole show, she says, is inspiring in that regard. When I hear the language that I use every day to openly and honestly talk about things like the presidency, democracy, and ballots, it's really intriguing. And I feel like, actually, we could do this here too. China's government has different plans. It's refused to renounce the use of force to seize Taiwan if necessary. This week, a Chinese rocket carrying a satellite flew over southern Taiwan, triggering jitters just days before the vote. There are no reliable polls, but many in China are no doubt on board with the notion that Taiwan needs to be brought back into the fold, and that elections probably don't help. In a random sampling of people on the street in Beijing, though, it's not hard to find people like Jackie, a freshman at one of the country's top universities. It has almost no impact on my life. It's just something we might chat about after a meal or something. At a kebab restaurant nearby, NPR met two guys named Bob and Alex. They're math majors in college. They say they just don't have time to pay much attention to the election. I don't really know anything about the two parties this year, so naturally I don't have any expectations. The topic doesn't come up with friends either, even those from Taiwan, the two men say. I have a lot of Taiwanese friends, and we just don't talk about sensitive topics. We all think it's annoying and don't want it to affect our friendship. Still, others are quietly thinking about the election. In a tiny bookstore in Beijing, Huiye says she thinks it's good that Taiwan has democratic elections, and she's interested. She likes Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party, whose candidate, current Vice President William Lai, is loathed by the Chinese government. The current ruling party, I think they're good. They stick to their principles. They stick to their democratic values. Taiwan, she says, seems like a more open and tolerant society. And she says she hopes one day the mainland can be more like Taiwan. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, we hear from a medical ethicist about public officials' right to privacy as criticism of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin continues over his failure to disclose he was being hospitalized.
Stormy weather doused the region overnight with heavy rain. That'll taper off this morning and the winds will die down. Skies are expected to clear after that and we're supposed to have a mostly sunny afternoon. Temperatures will fall to the low 40s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as it falls to the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow, it'll be in the mid-40s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Experience The Heart of New England, a giant screen film showcasing this iconic region. See it only on IMAX, MOS.org. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen plans to visit Boston today. She'll meet with Governor Healy and Mayor Wu at Roxbury Community College. The stop will include a tour of the school's recent energy efficiency upgrades. Yellen's trip is part of a wider tour promoting the Biden administration's clean energy tax credits. Waltham-based Excelitas Technologies is relocating its headquarters to Pittsburgh. The photonics company says it made the decision after getting a $2 million grant from the Pennsylvania governor's office. It says the move will not result in any job cuts in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association is dropping its lawsuit against a California aquarium that told people to stop eating lobster. The fight began in 2022 when the Monterey Bay Aquarium said the fisheries practices endangered North Atlantic right whales. The aquarium tells the Boston Herald it believes the end of the case is a victory for right whales and free speech. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu celebrated some of her administration's accomplishments in her State of the City speech last night. She also laid out plans for the coming months. WBMR's Simone Rios was at the MGM Music Hall for last night's speech and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So what was the general theme of Mayor Wu's speech? So she kept coming back to this idea of home. And obviously, a lot of that had to do with literal home, you know, housing and her plans for uh, more production, more affordable housing development in the city, but also a sense of home in terms of belonging in the city. She wants uh, more people to to feel that that Boston is theirs. Here she touches on some of the nut, nuts and bolts uh, city service issues, you know, less less than, than grandiose ideas. Last year, for drivers, we filled more than 7,000 potholes. For divers, we opened newly re- renovated pools in East Boston and Dorchester, with seven more on the way. For riders, we added e-bikes to blue bikes. And for hiders and seekers, we cut the ribbon on eight new playgrounds and parks. 
So she has a nice uh, little rhyme scheme going on there to talk about some some of the basic things that the city has accomplished over the last year. Um, but we heard a lot of numbers last night um, and also some announcements, a new geothermal um, heating network uh, in the Franklin Park neighborhood, a collaboration between uh, Boston Public Schools and, and UMass Boston out of different high schools. So uh, so a lot to report for sure from the mayor's state of the city last night. Yeah. To go back to the critical issue of housing, did she have specifics on what she wanted to do on that? Yeah. So she talked about the city having a higher ratio of affordable housing permitted um, over the last year compared to I think more than a dec more than a decade, um, and you know thousands of units permitted across the city, uh, an acquisition program to prevent housing, what they call naturally occurring affordable housing, from ending up in the hands of investors. Um, one thing she did not talk about uh, that um, some 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 were hoping was uh, a discussion of. The difficulty of building in the current environment in Boston. So, you know, there's like 20,000 units in, in the pipeline more. Uh, and, and many of those are sort of in limbo because of high interest rates. You know, so that's going to be a challenge. Well, the city of Boston has these huge production goals and they've permitted a lot of housing. Um, if developers can't make the numbers work for a given development, uh, it's just not going to happen. So this is Wu's second state of the city. In the first one, she talked a lot about rent control. So did that come up last night? No, it did not because the initiative has not advanced from the state house. But yeah, rent control was or rent stabilization, the term she opted for, um, was a huge part of her run for mayor. But in order for rent control to happen, the state legislature needs to approve it. So Michelle Wu did not mention it last night. And did you get reaction from people in the audience? One of the people I spoke to was Doug Chavez. He's a political consultant, a, a lobbyist in the city. And Doug says he doesn't agree with, with everything the mayor says or does. But one thing was clear. He said as a Latino, he felt a greater sense of belonging, the, the diversity uh, of the people there and just other themes. L let's listen to what Doug said. The mayor just speaking about diversity uh, initiatives that she's leading, um, the, the music choices. I feel like I belong here. Like, honestly, in past state of the cities, I just felt out of place. And I don't feel out of place here. And Chavez noted that, you know, the difference between candidate Michelle Wu, a more idealistic version uh, who wanted to, for example, abolish the Boston Planning and Development Agency, now wants to reform it. The difference between that version of Michelle Wu and the Michelle Wu, who's now entering her third year in office. WBUR Simone Rios, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a Wednesday on WBUR, coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition. With only days to go before the Iowa caucuses, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is scrambling to improve his standing in the race for the GOP presidential nomination. It's 7.50. Since I've set up the legacy gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash legacy.
The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity. Joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is facing criticism for failing to disclose he was being hospitalized as part of ongoing treatment for prostate cancer. Widespread power outages are being reported in New York and Pennsylvania following heavy rains and freezing temperatures. And Ecuador's president is declaring an internal armed conflict against criminal gangs days after gunmen attacked newscasters during a live broadcast. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In reporting this week on a spending agreement in Congress, our correspondent Eric McDaniel said something that caught our ear. He said the spending plan for the year includes $886 billion for the U.S. military and $773 billion for everything else. More money for defense than everything else at least in the discretionary budget, Social Security, and some other things are off to the side. Tom Shanker has been watching this. He is director of the Project for Media and National Security at George Washington University and covered the Pentagon for many years for the New York Times. Tom, welcome back. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me. I guess this caught our eye because it just seems like a lot of money and it is going up. What is the justification for continuing to raise the military budget at this time? Well, you know, members of Congress, Pentagon, the executive branch, they look around the world and they see just increasing dangers. Two nuclear arrivals, not just one in Russia and China, a very unstable Middle East and a whole rising array of threats that just don't respect the, 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 the borders or boundaries. And so they're throwing more money in an attempt to keep us safe. It's actually even more than the $886 billion. If you add in the intelligence community, FBI, Homeland Security, Steve, it's a whopping $1.2 billion overall for our security. Granting that the United States disengaged itself in recent years from two major wars, should there not have been some kind of peace dividend, as they say? You know, that's an argument that people who want the defense budget cut say, but there are some iron rules. You know, personnel costs are always a huge portion, uh, between 25 and 30 percent. Same at the Pentagon as at NPR or at GW, where I hang my hat now. And the troops got a 5.2 percent pay raise this year, which is something everybody supports. More money for for soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, even as they want defense spending to perhaps flatten out. There was inflation in recent years, and of course, wages have gone up somewhat in the economy. Does it make it essential to raise military pay to keep up? Well, I do think that the people who wear the cloth of our nation put their lives on the line to defend us, they deserve a good salary. There's very little dispute to that. Granting all of that, a lot of this money goes for technology. It goes for weapons. Of course, you need technology and weapons. Um, But it's going to defense contractors. It's going to the military-industrial complex, as they used to say. Is there a case to be made that just raising and raising the military budget allows the military to avoid making choices and they just keep everything and keep adding on to it without making uh, strategic decisions? 
You know, if Congress gives the Pentagon a budget that's an all-you-can-eat buffet, well, they're just going to keep eating. Exactly right. Uh, is so, so what would be an alternative approach then? Well, you know, I've always said that we need to spend enough on defense to keep us safe, but the first thing we need to do is to spend it wiser. And if you, and if you look at this budget, Steve, you still can't see an emerging grand strategy that really is going to keep us safe. They seem to keep putting more money into the traditional risks without really reshaping the defense budget for this modern new age of danger in which we find ourselves. There's a bipartisan congressional commission looking at the national defense strategy. They'll report out next year. Perhaps that will bring a better, a sharper focus and a smarter use of all of this money. Briefly speaking, what do you mean by a traditional risk versus a new threat? Well, you know, they're putting it against the great power rivals. They're they're putting it against threats like Iran and North Korea. But, you know, those of us who really watch this closely would like to see more money put against other threats like climate change is a national security risk. Food security is a national security risk. More into data and cyber. Some is going there. And, of course, the whole risk of AI, which the Pentagon is still wrestling with how to manage that. Tom Shanker is an author of a number of books and also the director of the Project for Media and National Security at George Washington University. Tom, thanks so much. Steve, great to have to be here with you. And thank you so much for a great new book, Differ We Must, about Lincoln in these complicated times. It's the right book. I bought it for my wife, but of course I read it first. <laughs> thanks for the plug, Tom. Have a good morning. Thanks to you, Steve. Bye now. Across the country, animal shelters are overflowing. Adoptions are not keeping pace with the number of animals coming in, which is leading to worsening conditions and higher rates of euthanasia in many shelters. But as NPR's Julie Deppenbrock reports, shelters are finding ways to innovate. At a Humane Rescue Alliance shelter in northwest Washington, D.C., dogs over 40 pounds and older dogs make up the majority of lengthy stays. By shelter standards, over 30 days. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Hello. Hero. He's a nice boy. That's Maureen Sosa, director of Pet Support. Oh, they took your bed, honey. Oh. Um, a lot of uh, pit bulls. A lot of pit bulls. It's uh, the popular dog in D.C., so we, we do see quite a few. When I visited the shelter late last year, many dogs had to be quarantined and walked separately in an effort to slow the spread of highly contagious canine influenza. It's been hard for everyone, I think, in this this field. But, you know, we band together, we talk, we come up with ideas, see what works, what doesn't, and do what it takes. Today, Humane Rescue Alliance reports that their two shelters are now free of the flu. But due to the number of animals in their care, they are still seeing cases of upper respiratory infections. According to Shelter Animals Count, a nonprofit that collects data from nearly 7,000 animal shelters nationwide, intake is up 10% from 2021. Couple that with a shortage of staffing, decrease in funding, shortage of veterinarians across the country, and it's really this perfect storm. That's Stephanie Filer, executive director of Shelter Animals Count. The majority of animals arrive at animal shelters because they were either surrendered by their owner, arrived as a stray, and then a very small percentage are due to cruelty, neglect, seizures. Filer says that return to work, rising food and vet costs, and pet restrictions at rental properties have all played a role in the surge in unwanted dogs. President and CEO of the Humane Rescue Alliance, Lisa LaFontaine, says their organization has had to reinvent how they do adoptions. 
we are putting on the calendar a lot of off-site adoptions so that people don't necessarily have to come to this facility. They might see that adoptions are happening at a bookstore that they go to or a restaurant or a coffee shop that they go to. So we're trying to bring the animals to where people are. That's because people are not coming to shelters the way they did before the pandemic, she says. So what we need to do is figure out how are people acquiring pets and how can we be there when they're ready? So every dog that ends up at a shelter can hopefully find its match. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with the Palestinian president as the U.S. encourages a Palestinian state as part of the post-war plans for Gaza. It's Wednesday, January 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is being treated for prostate cancer. He continues to make progress and we anticipate a full recovery, although this can be a slow process. But criticism continues over Austin's failure to disclose he was being hospitalized. Also this hour, House Republicans are preparing to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is stepping up his attacks on former President Donald Trump. He said he was going to do an executive order that was going to challenge this issue of illegal alien birthright citizenship. So he had four years, and he never did it. Stormy weather clears out for a mostly sunny afternoon in the 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump is making plans to return to court in New York this week. That's after a federal appeals court in Washington expressed doubts about his claims of absolute immunity. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports a ruling by the appeals court panel could come any time. All three judges on the D.C. appeals court panel seem doubtful former president should enjoy a free pass from criminal charges for actions they took while in the White House. The question is how broadly or narrowly the judges will rule and how much time Trump has to appeal to higher courts. The former president and GOP frontrunner has been seeking to delay all four criminal cases against him, trying to push those trials until after the next election. Closing arguments are set for Thursday in Trump's civil fraud trial in New York. His spokesman says Trump plans to attend, making it his second court appearance in a week. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The White House is directing cabinet secretaries to review their rules for delegating authority. NPR's Asma Khalid explains the move comes after the defense secretary was hospitalized for several days before informing the president. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized for complications following treatment for prostate cancer. The White House says Biden was informed of the cancer diagnosis just Tuesday morning. This, even though a statement from the hospital where he was treated, says the prostate cancer was identified in early December. Here's the administration's national security spokesman, John Kirby. It is not optimal for a situation like this uh, to go as long as it did without 
the commander-in-chief knowing about it. Kirby acknowledged this did not unfold the way it should have, but the White House insists Biden retains full confidence in the defense secretary. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Deadly winter weather continues to wallop the U.S. At least five people have been killed in several states. Blizzards persist in the Pacific Northwest. These stretch from Washington and Oregon into Idaho. There are also avalanche warnings in Idaho, as well as in Montana. Flooding is hitting the East Coast, while the South picks up tornado damage. There are dangerously powerful winds in the Southwest. The central U.S. is seeing wind chill values below zero. The wintry weather will create a cold snap over the next few days in the central U.S. That could affect voting next Monday in the Iowa caucuses. National Weather Service meteorologist Chad Hahn says temperatures in Iowa will be frigid on Monday as people go to vote. As of now, we have a high temperature of one degree on Monday, though with fresh snowpack, we're expecting those actually may be on the high side. So we may not uh, we may we We may not warm above zero degrees on Monday. That would set a temperature record for the Iowa caucuses. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The storm that's moving out of our region is causing problems for T-riders this morning. The MBTA says buses are replacing red line trains between Braintree and Quincy Center because of flooding. The Steamship Authority says it's canceled a number of early morning runs because of the high winds. There are also about 3,600 power outages statewide. The biggest numbers are in Rockport and Kingston. National Grid says it has crews ready to restore power, but they have to wait until the wind gusts die down. Nicola Metalova is head of electricity for National Grid New England. She estimates it may take several days to restore service to all customers. We will, of course, aim to do this absolutely as quickly as we can, but we do expect to be working through Wednesday, Thursday and likely into Friday to restore customers. FlightAware reports 48 flights in and out of Boston are canceled today. Another 30 have been delayed. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is encouraged by the state of the city. In her State of the City address last night, Wu highlighted success in supporting public infrastructure and the school system. She also talked about Boston's efforts to increase affordable housing. Wu says the city plans to build nearly 3,000 public housing units over the next decade that will be funded in part by the federal government. Across our city, too many families are getting displaced when their apartment buildings are scooped up by private investors. So we're launching a fund to make these buildings permanently affordable. Doubling down on our success last year, keeping 114 families in their homes in East Boston. Wu says this year the fund will be used to protect 400 more families citywide. Hitting the airwaves this week, a new public service announcement featuring the state's Secretary of Education. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted a lot of routines, including the habit of attending school every day. That's Patrick Tutwiler. WBWAR's Max Larkin reports the secretary hopes families will boost school attendance if they're asked nicely. One in five students missed at least 10% of scheduled school days last year, setting back their well-being and academic growth. Tutwiler says that officials want to work with families to reverse the trend, starting with that 30-second ad. We're not casting blame or pointing the finger. This is about bringing attention to the issue in an effort to really encourage partnership to address chronic absenteeism. 
State officials are weighing sanctions on districts that don't boost their attendance numbers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A New Hampshire man accused of making bomb threats against Harvard is expected to plead guilty today. Investigators say William A. Giordani threatened to detonate three bombs on Harvard's campus last spring unless he received a Bitcoin payment. Those threats prompted an evacuation of the area. The Boston Globe reports Giordani will plead guilty in Boston federal court today to conspiracy and extortion charges. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. The Bruins fell to the Coyotes 4-3 in overtime last night in Arizona. The Bees will visit the Vegas Golden Knights tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will play the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden. Scattered showers slowly taper off this morning. It'll eventually turn sunny by this afternoon. Temperatures today will fall into the 40s. Clear overnight with a low around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. We finally know why U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been in the hospital for the past week. He was suffering from complications following surgery for prostate cancer back in December 22nd. What remains unclear is why he took so long to tell people. Even the White House didn't know, according to spokesman John Kirby. Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning. Kirby was talking on Tuesday, January 9th, more than two weeks after Austin went into the hospital. For more on this, we're joined now by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So would you just start by summarizing the medical details we've now learned? Yeah, so doctors at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center say this really began about a month ago when Austin was diagnosed with early-stage prostate cancer. And then on December 22nd, he was given a general anesthetic and underwent what doctors described as minimally invasive surgery to remove his prostate gland. Austin went home the next day. His prognosis was described as excellent. All seemed well, though none of this was made public. But he suffered severe stomach, hip, and leg pain on January 1st. He was taken back to Walter Reed, and doctors in the intensive care unit determined he had a urinary tract infection. He's now on the mend and has been working from the hospital. Okay. So Secretary Austin is recovering. That's good news. But this whole question of disclosure, let's just set the public aside. Why wasn't the White House and other people who were in the national security leadership made aware of this? I mean, people at least who'd have to make decisions if he were not in a position to do so. Yeah, Michelle, that's really not clear. We haven't had a good explanation. It just, uh, it's kind of a muddled story that keeps dribbling out. And here's sort of the, the quick timeline. On January 2nd, the day after he went back to the hospital, the number two at the Pentagon, Kathleen Hicks, was put in charge temporarily, though she was on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time. Two more days passed, and on January 4th, the White House said it first learned that Austin was back at Walter Reed. The first public mention came a day later on January 5th, and then yesterday brought this additional surprise that the White House said it just learned Austin had cancer, but this was five days after the White House said it knew he was in the hospital. 
All right. So, Greg, so, you know, performative outrage is something that we've become very accustomed to in Washington. But even apart from that, is there likely to be any fallout for Secretary Austin or the Pentagon from the people who presumably matter most? I mean, the White House, for example. Well, so far, no repercussions. Uh, the White House is saying that uh, Secretary Austin will stay in his position, but obviously uh, it's, it's been pretty embarrassing and a lot of head-scratching about the way it's handled. We know Austin is a very private person. He doesn't relish the spotlight, but this information certainly needed to be shared with others in uh, the White House or the national security community. And we should note that uh, President Biden was out of the country over New Year's uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. U.S. national security teams were close tracking two wars, uh, Israel-Hamas and uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. Is this prompting any new protocols for the next time something like this comes up? Well, seems so. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients on Tuesday said the more than 20 cabinet secretaries all need to submit in writing their current protocols if they face this kind of scenario. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Michelle. Federal appeals court judges had questions about a claim by Donald Trump. His lawyers say he should be immune from prosecution for his acts as president, even his effort to overturn his election defeat. Trump is trying to avoid a trial. Kim Whaley is a former federal prosecutor, now a constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore and a regular guest here. And she was listening yesterday. Kim, welcome back. Good morning, Steve. Um, What was the strongest argument that you heard yesterday in favor of of presidential immunity, if any? That's really tough, if any. I think the problem with Donald Trump's position is that there's no limiting principle. That is, uh, his argument is that any actions taken while president, even if criminal, are protected from any liability unless the there's a political system, that is the impeachment process, that convicts him first. It's a sort of a tortured argument um, that that is not consistent, I think, with the spirit of the Constitution, which says no more kings. Isn't there a history, though, of loose restrictions on the president of the United States? The president in many areas has been held in place more by norms than by laws under the theory that a president might at some point need to do almost anything. Well, unlike for members of Congress, there's no express provision of the Constitution that gives presidents immunity. But the Supreme Court has held, you know, presidents do have to have some leeway to make really hard decisions that critics might not like. And if they were worried all the time that they could be sued or criminally prosecuted, it would hamstring their ability to actually function as president. But, you know, sort of inciting an insurrection, the things that Donald Trump has been accused of, and also pretty well established factually in various venues, I think it's really tough to say, uh, violate the law, as as some of the judges mentioned, just Judge Henderson, the idea of executing the law in the way that is criminal, um, that's contradictory and inconsistent. So I think we have a, a factually a pretty clear line here, but it's not one that Donald Trump's lawyers are willing to recognize. Judge Henderson, we should note, a Republican appointee on this panel, basically saying you cannot claim you were enforcing the law by violating the law. There was another interesting exchange involving Judge Florence Pan, who is a, who is a, a, an appointee of a Democrat Democratic president who asked about this hypothetical. Suppose that the president of the United States sends a Navy SEAL team to kill a political opponent. Could you prosecute them for that? What did you make of the uh, of Trump's lawyer's response? 
his argument, he sort of got cornered. Uh, he said that that would be something that, of course, there would be an impeachment process and he would be impeached. Um, we've seen impeachment not work. I think many of us who think about this a lot think we might as well get out our black Sharpie because it's so politically fraught. Um, and he was cornered to say, yeah, that would be that would be tolerable under the Constitution unless there was a political engine uh, that stopped it initially. And of course, his argument also assumes that the president wouldn't somehow hamstring Congress or make it hard for the Senate to do its job or resign before there can be an impeachment. So it, it, I don't think it was a very successful response, but but there's not a really good glee that I could think of as an alternative. I, I, even, I even wondered if you said you must uh, be impeached and convicted first for assassinating a political rival. Well, you could just have Congress killed, I suppose. Exactly. I think, you know, I mean, th these are scenarios that seem absurd, but but that's where we are in the absurd lands with some of these arguments. Do you see any possibility that the appeals court might might give Trump some leeway here? Well, one of the judges thought there needed to be a more um, review of the factual record to sort of parse out which parts are OK, which parts might not. Um, but I don't think they will affirm his position by any means. No. And that is an interesting detail because, of course, the timing all of, of all of this is considered crucial if uh, Trump's trial is to begin on time. Kim, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Kim Whaley at the University of Baltimore. Ecuador is descending into crisis. Drug gangs terrorize that South American country. The murder rate has soared, and Ecuador just had an especially bloody week. In response, the new president has declared an internal armed conflict. Reporter Jorge Valencia has more. The chaos was broadcast on live television. Mass gunmen shouted as they barged into the studios of TC Television in the city of Guayaquil. They drew their weapons and flashed what appeared to be a hand grenade. Shouting no police, they ordered the TV crew to get down on the floor. They also wanted the microphones. What? That was the reaction from Juan Pablo Ruiz, a reporter with TC Television. He was watching the broadcast from another office in the capital of Quito. We started calling commanders and colonels, Ruiz tells me, and they responded. Within an hour, police officers had taken over the studio and arrested 13 gunmen. They wanted to sow fear, Ruiz says, and we couldn't allow that. This latest wave of violence began to engulf the country over the weekend after the notorious drug lord Adolfo Macias escaped from prison. Also known as Fito, he is infamous and brash. So brash that he recently made an appearance from prison in this video dedicated to him. Though he's supposed to be paying a 34-year sentence for organized crime, drug trafficking, and murder. The song calls him Chief Among Chiefs. He's the head of Los Choneros, a criminal group that authorities say exerts power over prisons across Ecuador. On Sunday, he vanished from his cell. And almost as soon as officials began looking for him, inmates in a half dozen prisons rioted and took guards hostage. I'm giving clear and precise orders, President Daniel Noboa responded. On Monday, he ordered the military into prisons and onto streets. 
The following day, after a wave of apparently coordinated gang violence, he designated 20 gangs as terrorist groups. He also declared the country had entered internal armed conflict. The TC television reporter Juan Pablo Ruiz says that right now, Ecuador needs to be united. Because police have to keep the public safe, he says, and journalists have to inform the public. And here we are, Ruiz says. By day's end, his colleagues were back on air. And he had filed a news report on the day's events. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia in Bogotá. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on an effort by House Republicans to fulfill promises to their conservative base by impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary and holding President Biden's son Hunter in contempt of Congress. It's 819. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series with countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo at Jordan Hall on January 19th performing music from Vivaldi to Streisand, celebrityseries.org. I'm Scott Tong. Donald Trump is in court this week, arguing he has broad immunity from prosecution. This as his 2024 election campaign heats up, and the Iowa caucuses come next week. We'll convene a roundtable of political strategists next time and here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Scattered showers taper off and winds die down this morning. Then skies gradually clear and we may see some sun this afternoon. Temperatures will fall throughout the day from where they are now to the low 40s by about mid-afternoon. Tonight mostly clear in the low 30s. Tomorrow sunny with a high in the mid-40s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. On Wednesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Since Donald Trump became president in 2016, many Republican politicians have molded themselves in his image. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben has more on one of those politicians who wants Iowa voters to know he's like Trump, but also not. This is a story about Ron DeSantis trying to win the Iowa caucuses, which means it's also a story about Donald Trump. I'm more popular than you, and you know it. I'm backing your primary opponent, and you're going to lose. 
that was not Donald Trump. That was Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey doing his Trump impression as he stumped for DeSantis in Davenport. It's clear that the former president is looming heavily over the DeSantis campaign in the days before the Iowa caucuses. And there's a turnabout here that's been years in the making. Back in 2018, when he was running for governor of Florida, DeSantis famously released an ad in which he taught his young children about Trump. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. And Trump really liked DeSantis. At one 2019 rally, he praised the governor's bod. And then I see him without a shirt one day. And this guy is strong. And he's not fat. That's all power. That's all muscle. I want to tell you that. But then DeSantis became a top potential presidential candidate. As of early 2023, he was within spitting distance of Trump, around 10 points. So Trump started expending a lot of energy slamming DeSantis. In a recent speech in New Hampshire, he accused DeSantis of wearing lifts in his boots. No, he's walking off the stage like he's trying to balance himself. I thought he was wearing ice skates. DeSantis steadily sank in the polls throughout last year and is now around 30 points behind Trump in Iowa, according to 538. That's for a variety of reasons, but one obvious possibility is that there may simply not be much room in this primary for a guy who's so clearly Trumpist but isn't Trump. Maybe the most important way DeSantis echoes Trump is that he readily encourages distrust in elections, at least when Democrats win. Here he was in Ankeny criticizing California's elections. The results the next morning will have one candidate in one place, the next and the next, and then they'll count for three more weeks, and it flips. And it almost always flips in favor of whoever the machine Democrat is. And you look at that, and you're just like, all right, is that, how do you have confidence in that? DeSantis spent a lot of this campaign seemingly ignoring Trump's attacks. But now DeSantis is ramping up his criticism of Trump and often hitting one point hard. He would actually do the Trumpist policies and better than Trump did. He said he was going to do an executive order that was going to challenge this issue of illegal alien birthright citizenship. It would get litigated, but he would do it. So he had four years. All he had to do was sign his name to this order, and he never did it. DeSantis also has plenty of barbs for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who is neck and neck with him in Iowa. But talk to enough DeSantis supporters and the Trump connection is overwhelming. Monica McHugh had a front row seat to see DeSantis at a bar in downtown Dubuque. I really liked Ron DeSantis from the beginning. He's kind of, I don't want to say trump light, but he treats the press just like Trump did, but he's more factual. I asked her to tell me more about what trump light might mean. When Trump would throw out the tweets, I mean, he, he attacks people personally. And that's something that I never really liked with him. That's a common sentiment among DeSantis supporters, that their main beef with Trump is not on substance, but rather how he acts. Sarah Harbaugh said something similar before DeSantis spoke in Cedar Falls, saying that she thinks Trump has too many enemies to be effective. My lean towards DeSantis is more just to, I'm not sure that the media and the country would allow Trump to do what he wants to do, where DeSantis, I think, might have a better chance at getting things done. DeSantis has seemingly done everything he can to try to win Iowa. He has visited all 99 counties. He has Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement, not to mention Bob Vanderplatz, president and CEO of the evangelical organization, the Iowa Family Leader. That's a big deal in a state where white evangelicals drive GOP outcomes. In Ankeny last weekend, Vanderplatz got at the ever-present struggle candidate DeSantis has faced. 
not being Trump, but appealing to Trump's voters. And I'm telling you, my support of Ron DeSantis is not against President Trump. My support of Ron DeSantis so that we win in 2024 is for the future of this country. Come next That's week, Iowa will give the first answers on how much room there ever was for that type of candidate. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Des Moines. This next story takes us to the bottom of the sea. Scientists have found World War II-era military weapons 3,000 feet beneath the waves off Los Angeles. Eric Taro of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego helped lead a team mapping the ocean floor in the San Pedro Basin. There was actually four different types of munitions. We found a type of pyrotechnic called a smoke float. Uh, This has essentially set up a smoke screen for ships to evade the enemy. And then we found two different types of depth charges. These are the type of munitions that are uh, dumped over the side of a ship to essentially damage enemy submarines. Wow, they're just sitting there. Now, when they discovered these weapons, researchers were expecting to map something else, a debris field of chemical waste, traces of the insecticide DDT. Early in the history of our country, we thought the oceans made a perfect dumping ground. With the environmental revolution in the 70s, I think we quickly realized that this was probably not such a great idea, even if it was out of sight, out of mind. Dumping munitions in the water was also common during and after World War II. Today, researchers are studying how all that ocean waste affects our food chain. Sophia Merrifield is another Scripps oceanographer who co-led the mapping assignment. She says there is still a lot more mapping to do. Just understanding what the human footprint was in the ocean going back historically, and then understanding what the impact of those dumping activities are on the marine food web presently, I think is a really important societal effort. Now more than 300 hours of high-resolution images may help to map those effects. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. And then coming up at 845 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the U.S. economy is supposedly doing well, but polls show people don't feel that way. We'll look at the role the media may be playing in the disparity. It's 829. If you're working on your fitness in the new year, join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The chair of the National Transportation Safety Board says investigators are still trying to determine what caused a section of fuselage to blow out on an Alaska Airlines jet last week. Jennifer Hammondy spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. 
We know what broke. The components on the top of the door plug fractured, which allowed the plug to be violently expelled from the plane. The bolts that hold those components in place, we don't know whether those bolts themselves also fractured, were loose, or whether they weren't even installed on the door. And that's something we're going to have to determine when we get that door plug to the lab. United and Alaska Airlines say subsequent inspections revealed more loose bolts and hardware issues on other aircraft. With five days to go before the Iowa caucuses, Republican presidential contenders Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley will be squaring off tonight on the debate stage. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. Three candidates running for the Republican presidential nomination met the bar to participate in the debate hosted by CNN. But former President Donald Trump, with a commanding lead in the polls, has again declined to take part. He's expected to appear on Fox News instead, leaving the debate stage to Haley and DeSantis. It's being held at Drake University in Des Moines. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Most of the rain from our overnight storm is gone, but the flooding risk remains. The National Weather Service says a flood warning remains in effect until 2 this afternoon. Floods have caused problems on the T this morning. Trains are running again on the red line, but there are major delays because of flooding near Braintree. The wind overnight has led to 3,200 power outages statewide. The biggest number is in Rockport. Over at Logan Airport, FlightAware reports nearly 50 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled. There's another 33 delayed. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the state of the city is strong. In her State of the City address last night, Wu highlighted what she called various successful initiatives in Boston. Those include investing in minority businesses and increasing affordable housing. She also touched on some new goals for the city moving forward. Wu says Boston is following through on its promise to be a green city for every resident. Last year, I promised to ban fossil fuels in new city buildings. And we did. Already, two new community centers and two libraries in progress will be fossil fuel free. And this year, we will introduce zero net carbon zoning to make Boston the greenest city in the country. Wu also announced the city will launch its first network geothermal system. That project will deliver sustainable heating and cooling to homes in Franklin Park. State lawmakers will hear testimony this afternoon on legislation meant to protect schools and libraries from politically motivated book bans. The bill would create standards for schools to respond to such efforts. Materials could be removed by school committee only after a public hearing. Carol Rose is head of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, which supports the effort. She says the legislation would allow librarians to do their jobs without fear of political reprisal. It's really important that the Commonwealth give guidance to our educators and especially to our librarians so that they know what to do when these situations arise. And in the meantime, the students' rights to learn are protected. The ACLU of Massachusetts reports at least 45 efforts to ban books in the state in 2022. Hospitals in the state will get more than $7.5 million to help cover pandemic-related expenses. Emerson and Lowell General Hospitals and the Cambridge Health Alliance are among those receiving the federal funds. The money will help cover the cost of supplies for protective and cleaning equipment. It'll also help offset costs for increased staffing. It's 8.34. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Bruins have now lost four games in a row that went past regulation. They fell to the Coyotes 4-3 to in overtime last night in Arizona. Boston will visit Las Vegas tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Minnesota Timberwolves. Strong winds die down and some scattered showers will taper off over the next few hours. Then clouds gradually move out and we'll have a mostly sunny afternoon. Temperatures will cool throughout the day to the low 40s. Tonight, low 30s and mostly clear with some gusty winds. Tomorrow, mid-40s and sunny. It's 55 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Congress has just nine days to avoid a partial government shutdown. Which is not stopping many House Republicans from focusing on some other things. They talk of impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and of holding the president's son, Hunter Biden, in contempt of Congress. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is with us now to tell us more about all of this. Good morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Michelle. So House Speaker Mike Johnson says addressing the situation at the border is a top priority. How does impeaching the top administration official in charge of the border address that? Well, House Republicans really single out Secretary Mayorkas as the person they think is responsible for the record numbers of migrants in recent months have entered the U.S. The House Homeland Security Committee today is starting the process to impeach him. They're having a hearing that focuses on the impact of the border crisis in states like Montana, Missouri, Oklahoma. They're planning more hearings, and they've invited the secretary to testify, but they say he hasn't responded yet. Politics is obviously a big part of this now that we're in an election year. But both moderate and conservatives, Republicans I talk to on the Hill say that the border is really a top issue they hear about from voters back home. And a lot of them think Democrats are going to be vulnerable on this issue in the 2024 election. I think many people remember this, that high crimes or misdemeanors is the standard for impeachment. So what are Republicans saying the high crime or misdemeanor is that Mayorkas has committed? They argue he's failed to address the crisis of the border, and they say he is not enforcing current immigration laws. Some Senate Republicans disagree with that argument. They say it's the president, not the Homeland Security Secretary, who's responsible. Mayorkas is just carrying out the president's policies. Even if the House approves articles of impeachment against Mayorkas in the coming weeks, he's not likely to be removed by the Democratic Senate. So another probe, this one against President Biden, his son Hunter Biden offered to testify in public about this because he's central to the House Republican argument. Why are House Republicans moving to hold him in contempt? They say Hunter Biden is in defiance of a subpoena to appear in a closed-door deposition last month. Most interviews and congressional investigations are not in public, at least in the beginning. But Hunter Biden argued Republicans would distort his testimony and said he would only testify at a public hearing. Two panels today are voting on a contempt resolution. Those are likely to be approved along party lines and eventually head to the House floor next. 
Democrats argue this Republican impeachment probe is really just a sham that Republicans haven't provided any clear evidence that President Biden, when he was vice president, benefited financially from any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. There are a number of conservatives who have been pressuring House Speaker Johnson about a number of things like spending. Is there some way in which these moves are related to that? You know, it's really unclear if this is going to stave off any conservative criticism. It didn't work for the former House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, who moved an impeachment inquiry to try to head off criticism. He was ultimately ousted. We're seeing some conservatives who back this impeachment of Mayorkas and contempt resolution of Hunter Biden still come out and criticize the current speaker over his decision to agree to a spending deal with Democrats over the weekend. They want more policy changes on the border. Remember, it only takes one lawmaker to bring up a resolution to oust the speaker. That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. The Biden administration says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's job is not in jeopardy because he didn't disclose a health condition requiring hospitalization sooner. But some critics, mainly Republicans, are calling for him to be fired. And others say the rules around disclosing this kind of thing just need to be more clear. Here's former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta on CNN. The health of the Secretary of Defense is a public issue. It's a public matter. So having talked about the politics of this, we wanted to think more about this from a different perspective. So we've called Keisha Ray. She is an associate professor at UT Health Houston, where her focus is medical ethics. Good morning. Good morning. So as a medical ethicist, how are you responding to this controversy? I mean, on the one hand, most people don't want their personal business, you know, in the street. On the other hand, Secretary Austin's availability to address crises is relevant, given his position. Should he have been more forthcoming? Right. I think in this issue, you have to really separate workplace ethics and workplace norms from the ethical standards of privacy. Because if you look at it from a medical ethics standpoint, we want to make sure that Secretary Austin, when he's in the position of a patient, that he gets all of the benefits of patients. And that includes privacy, which particularly means control over his health information. And so you have to sort of separate what he should do as a Secretary of Defense, but then also what he should do um, as a patient. Can I just ask you about this? Because we've been focusing on, you know, the, the obvious question of the United States is engaged in some a number of very sensitive sort of foreign policy issues at the moment where his advice presumably is critical. On the other hand, are, do you see some drawbacks if public officials are required to disclose certain health information? Absolutely. So one, we are all just entitled to being able to hold on to our health information. That's just something that is basics of medical ethics. But then also there are there may be um, political or diplomatic reasons to keep health issues private, that they can be used against you, be used against the country, those kinds of issues. But ultimately, we want to make sure that people reveal their health status when they want to and not when um, they are forced to. But what about that? public. I don't know if it's the public here or whether it's his uh, the people who are part of the national security leadership who are most relevant here. So let's, for the sake of this, just talk about that. I mean, isn't there a level of disclosure that should be required within that circle or, or perhaps not? I don't I don't know. Yeah, I think that's just, again, going back to separating what is medically, ethically required and workplace norms. Workplace norms may require you to reveal certain information for the sake of the job and to make sure that everything is in place and everything is being taken care of, all of the duties. And if you cannot perform your duties, then that's when a workplace ethics would come in and 
say, okay, let's make sure that people know that you are temporarily in a unable to perform your duties. And so I just want to make sure that we're separating those two. And if he is required to reveal his health information, then that's a norm that needs to be established for all government officials in these high level positions and not just one person. But we need a, a protocol. This is this is not an excuse, but it may be an explanation. I am curious if you think because your focus is medical ethics and you have done a lot of research into specific communities, do you think culture plays some role in this? Absolutely. Whenever we're talking about health issues, whenever we're talking about privacy standards and confidentiality, we have to look at it with some sort of cultural competency, right? We have an older Black man, we have an older Black man from the South, and we do know medical ethicists that certain populations in our country do tend to be a bit more private and want to handle things on their own or within their close-knit family and friends. And so we can't ignore that in the moment when Defense uh, Secretary Austin, when he was a patient, he is still entitled to those benefits of a patient. And that means handling these issues private if he likes. That is Keisha Ray. She's an associate professor of humanities and ethics at UT Health Houston. Professor Ray, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the implications of a new federal rule that determines which workers can be treated as independent contractors and which have to be classified as employees. Scattered showers taper off this morning and the winds will die down. Skies are expected to clear after that and we're supposed to have a mostly sunny afternoon. Temperatures will fall to the low 40s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as it falls to the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow, it'll be in the mid-40s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial. Committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. Nearly 100 physicians at Salem Hospital are organizing a union. The group signed cards this week in support of joining Council 93 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The union says the doctors want more say in how patient care is delivered. They cite a health care system that is increasingly controlled by financial priorities. Boston-based Bain & Company is the best place to work in the U.S. That's according to a new survey by the workplace review website Glassdoor. The management consulting firm earned a 4.8 out of 5 rating from its employees. Other Boston-area companies, including MathWorks and Fidelity Investments, earned a spot on the survey's top 10 list. It's 8.45. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
We're going to find out tomorrow how much prices rose in December, but the expectation is very little. As far as the economy goes, the picture looks brighter than it has for years. Unemployment is low, very low. Yet Americans are currently pretty sour about the economy and the Biden administration's handling of it. And now there's some evidence to suggest that one factor may be the media. NPR's David Fulkenflick joins us to walk us through why that may be the case. David, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So, David, look, you know, watch the news, read the headlines. It's Anxiety City out there. Well, look, there are two baskets, right? There's the disingenuous and the discouraging. Disingenuous over on Fox News. Much of the time with a Democrat like Joe Biden in the White House, anything that goes wrong is going to be Joe Biden's fault. And almost anything that Joe Biden does is going to be wrong. So part of that has to be the hardening of ideological and partisan loyalties, especially on the right. The Fox News effect, but let's not just attribute it only to Fox News. There's hardcore Twitter users and the like. But that said, Michelle, the mainstream outlets like The New York Times and CNN and all the rest, they're hardly doing the Biden campaign's bidding. It's often the equivalent of doom scrolling. Say more about that. Well, look, here's a copy of The New York Times I have in front of me, the front of the business section from the other day. It's a big story. It takes over, got to be at least three quarters of the front page of the business section. It says, will America's good news over fading inflation last? Another question might be, will America's good news be covered as good news? But for a long time, the story has been, I'm talking in broad strokes here, since the economy is so good, why do people feel so bad? More recently, it feels like it's become, if the economy is so good, are those good times about to come to an end? It's a lot easier to cover discouragement than uplift. But people are spending as though they think things are okay. And yet you're seeing all these big spreads on inflation fears or worry stocks could plunge at any time. It just feels like a palpable anxiety. So, David, why do you think there is this gap between what the big economic indicators are showing and the nature of the coverage that we're seeing? Look, the pandemic truly was a shock, and a lot of people are still hurting. But let's pause here. Unemployment has been below 4% for about two years now. That's extraordinary. Wage increases outstripping inflation for a while now. And there are these two scholars at the Brookings Institution with a study that's just out looking at news coverage and consumer sentiment since 1980. They say the tone of news coverage about the economy has become markedly more negative over the past six years, and the sheer volume of that negative coverage has increased notably over the past three years, which coincides with the Biden presidency. So that's their conclusion. I think there's a reason that helps contribute to that, that after so much intense coverage of former President Donald Trump's outrages and indictments and incitements and impeachments, the press corps is seeking to prove it can be tough on Joe Biden, too. But I also think there is kind of this intensification that happens in a social media age and a somewhat oppositional stance uh, that's hard to let up even when the news is good. So what does all this mean? Well, voters are at once absorbing from the news media and reflecting back to reporters a distrust of the economy. But there's a bitter irony here. The media has had all these tough headlines and advertisers have believed them. So that means despite all this incredibly low employment, there's been a recession in the media industry in institution after institution, including our own. Hmm. That is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. David, thank you so much. You bet. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the state of emergency in Ecuador. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. In Taipei, a comedy club has become an unlikely venue for working out tensions between Taiwan and China. Hi, my name is Jamie. I'm from China. Thank you for the awkward silence. (laughs) We take you there on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas as the U.S. encourages a Palestinian state as part of plans for Gaza after the war. The Pentagon says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin remains hospitalized to treat prostate cancer, but it's unclear why officials were not informed about his condition right away. And a new report from the World Economic Forum says false information from AI technology is the greatest risk to the global economy. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Scattered showers taper off over the next few hours. Skies will clear to let in some sun this afternoon as temperatures fall to the low 40s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Are you an employee or an independent contractor? Regulators have a new litmus test. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. From Marketplace, I'm Novasafo, in for David Brancaccio. The Labor Department has a new rule for determining which workers are independent contractors and which should be classified as employees with rights to minimum wage, overtime, and other benefits. This is a change to a Trump-era policy. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman has more. The Trump administration's rule was more independent contractor friendly, focusing mostly on the employer's control of working conditions and how much opportunity the worker had to make a profit or loss. The new rule considers the whole economic relationship, says employment attorney Denise Kaiser at law firm Ballard Spar. Are they truly independent? Are they in business for themselves? Are they investing in materials or equipment? Are they running their own business? Are they running the show? That's a lot of boxes to check off to prove someone working for you is an independent contractor, not an employee. And Sally Dwarak-Fisher at the National Employment Law Project says that'll make it harder for gig economy companies to explain why their drivers aren't eligible for the full benefits of employment. Laid out in the rule, one of the factors is, does the worker meaningfully negotiate or set their own prices? Ride-hail drivers and many app-based workers have no power to negotiate, much less set their own prices. 
The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has opposed the new rule. Vice President Mark Friedman predicts it'll stifle gig work in a range of professions. Financial services, I think of this solo operator running, let's say, a web design service. This regulation is going to cause some companies to not want to engage independent contractors as they had before for fear that they will be considered employees. The new independent contractor rule is set to go into effect March 11th. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. The FAA has extended the grounding of 737 MAX 9 jets as investigators work to determine why a door plug meant to seal an emergency exit broke off the fuselage of a MAX plane on Friday during an Alaska Airlines flight. Boeing CEO David Calhoun said the company will acknowledge its mistake. Let's do the numbers. Well, on Wall Street, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are pointing to a flat open. The Dow future is down all of four points right now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. With cybersecurity a top priority for business, the Bitwarden Password Manager offers multiple authentication options for single sign-on for enterprises. Learn more at bitwarden.com. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for forward-thinking individuals to join their team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. Conflicts around the globe, a politically divided U.S., doubts about China's economy. These are some of the things to worry about this new year, according to an annual report from political risk consultancy, the Eurasia Group. It's not all doom and gloom, though. Stick with us for the next few minutes, and you'll hear an upbeat forecast for one major diplomatic relationship. The Eurasia Group's founder and president is Ian Bremmer. He spoke with the host of this program, David Brancaccio. We have to start with 2024 as an election year, both in the U.S., but I should point out India, Russia, the European Parliament. But what's your formulation here? The U.S. election, you're calling it the U.S. versus itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, a a, a war uh, along the lines of what we're seeing between Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Hamas, because uh, inside the United States, they see each other as principal adversaries and they don't agree on basic facts. David, most of the elections in the world this year are actually not at all destabilizing. Uh, Russia, because we know what the outcome is going to be. Sri Lanka, we just had. India, enormously popular leader, is going to get another five years. European Union, their parliament's going to return the same coalition. But in the United States, where both of these leaders have everything to fight over and for, this is a crisis of democracy. Yeah, and I was looking at this report from Goldman Sachs late last year that shows that incumbent U.S. presidents tend to win unless there's an economic downturn. The statistics don't show an economic downturn, but there's also the perception of the economy that voters have. Well, incumbents aren't usually running against former presidents. That's number one. Usually the basic information environment is not contested. Uh, That's number two. And usually the president is an 81. If Trump wasn't running against him, everyone would say Biden shouldn't be running. He's not going to make it to 86 to finish out a second term. But all of that goes out the window when your former president that is running refused to accept a free and fair transfer of power. I mean, my God, the former secretary of defense under Trump came out and said that Trump is a clear danger to the future of democracy. That should be in a functional democracy. That would be the top thing that you're actually debating. That is not what's happening in the United States right now, which tells you about the crisis that's presently going on politically in this country. 
I was desperate for even more doom scrolling, at least the audio version here from you. But I see that you seem to make the case that things might be looking up for the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, the most important geopolitical relationship in the world, the Chinese really don't want any further crisis with the U.S. because their economy is performing so badly. And the United States dealing with the Middle East, dealing with Russia, Ukraine, and in the middle of an election campaign, Biden wants to manage the relationship as well. Now, artificial intelligence. I mean, this is a list of geopolitical risks. Uh, is this the year AI gets too big for its boots and causes some kind of existential threat? Uh, not existential. And I'm a big enthusiast about AI and what it can do to help the economy globally. But uh, this is definitely a year where the technology that is driving AI is moving a lot faster than the ability to govern it. And that means that disinformation driven by AI, especially as it impacts elections, as well as the proliferation of dangerous AI technologies in the hands of actors, both government and non-government, that are willing to use it to threaten national security, that is becoming a risk in 2024. Ian Bremer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, speaking to us about Eurasia's top risks report. Ian, always good to check in. Great to be back, David. And that was David Brancaccio with that interview. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Scattered showers taper off and the wind dies down this morning. Skies will clear and we'll have a mostly sunny afternoon. Meanwhile, temperatures will fall throughout the day to the low 40s. Tonight, mostly clear and low 30s. Tomorrow, lots of sun and temperatures in the mid 40s. And we're saying goodbye to our executive producer, Dan Guzman, this morning. He's moving on to lead our All Things Considered team. All of us here at Morning Edition wish him the best and thank him for the many years he's led us through the tough early morning hours. It's 55 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm Scott Tong. Donald Trump is in court this week, arguing he has broad immunity from prosecution. This as his 2024 election campaign heats up, and the Iowa caucuses come next week. We'll convene a roundtable of political strategists next time and here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.